As we get started this morning, just kind of by way of another little announcement that some of you already know about, um, I didn't know that I was speaking this morning until last evening. Uh, Paul Jessup was supposed to speak this morning, and uh, but got a call. Stuart got a call that their daughter had broken her leg, so they were at the hospital getting all that taken care of. And um, so Stuart called me and said, what are you doing tomorrow? And I said, uh, it sounds like I'm preaching. <laughs> so he is at Hurstbridge. Uh, Stuart and Bronwyn are out at Hurstbridge this morning. And so he said, since I, he couldn't be here, could I be here and pray for the Jessops? Because I don't really know any details about uh, that. You know, it's one of those things where Stuart said, I just found out, so I don't have much to tell you, but be be praying for them because, you know, parents going through something like that with a young child and, and it's, it's got to be difficult. So uh, anyway, so that's why we are not looking at Mark this morning because Paul was going to talk about uh, their work in Japan and mission and things like that. So Stuart said, Can, do you, could you talk about mission tomorrow? And I thought, I was a missionary for 10 years. I think I can talk about mission. But I sat with the Lord and um, asked him, you know, my, my messages come from him. They don't come from my experience and they don't come from where I want to go. But I really just sat with the Lord and said, where do you want us to go in this time together as we think about what it means to be your missional people uh, in the world today? And so... Um, as I sat with him at about four o'clock this morning, here's some thoughts that um, came to me as we sat together. Um, but as we open the word, we're going to be looking at that passage that Aaron just read for us a few moments ago out of 1 Peter chapter 2. So we're going to be looking at that. But um, as we open the, open the word, let's pray and ask the Spirit to guide our thoughts as we see what he has for us here. Father, nothing takes you by surprise. And we believe that what you have for us this morning out of your word is what you want us to hear. And so I pray that we would be open to your spirit as he speaks to us. I ask that we would receive, that our ears would be open, that our hearts would be open, that our lives would be open to your spirit. Teach us what it means to truly find our identity in you, not in the things of this world, not in any other thing, but to truly know who we are as your people and how to live as a result of that. So Spirit, fill us, help us. You are our true teacher. So help us to receive what you have. If you know this prayer, sing it with me. Spirit of the living God, fall afresh on me. Spirit of the living God, fall afresh on me. Melt me, mold me, fill me, use me. Spirit of the living God, fall afresh on me. Father, that's our prayer. In Jesus' name, amen. 
I've been thinking recently that we have been living in, I think, interesting times. And I don't know if, you've, if you have made the same observations that I have had as, as you even read the newspaper, as you look at current events, as you just think about the world that we are living in today. These are interesting days. And one of the observations that I have made in so many situations that are, that are happening, even as, as, as I read the news, how many situations and issues and questions revolve around this question of identity? It's an interesting thing, isn't it, how identity is such a huge topic in our world today. Think about all the identity issues that are a part of life, and you probably haven't even really realized how many of these really have at the very core an issue of identity. A lot of the gender issues that are, that are happening in the world today have at the very core a sense of identity. You know, I was, Sue and I were having dinner last night with, with two dear friends who are both medical doctors, and it's interesting how, you know, we talk and we read the book of Genesis, God created male and female. Well, that's two as far as I know, but the last, the last number we both saw was that there are 71 possibilities out of those two that, that people could find their sense of identity in. It's not just male and female. How do you get 71 possibilities of a gender identification out of those two? But there are a lot of people who, who are finding that sense of, of, of identity confusion around their gender, trying to figure out which I am, or am I transitioning from one to the other, or the other to the one, or, or a combination of the two? A sense of confusion about identity that that finds itself in, in, in our gender. I did a study when I was doing my PhD on cultural identity, because for those of us who have moved from one culture to another, and finding my sense of identity in that culture is a huge thing. And when I shift from one culture to another, my sense of identity changes. And that's a huge issue, especially for those of us who have children who were raised in one culture and we're from another culture, and we call them third culture kids because they don't identify with either of those cultures. And that's a huge issue. What about political identities? I am of this party, you're of that party, and I was talking with my brother recently in the States, and under the presidency of Donald Trump, he was saying, I have never seen this country so polarized because of political identities. You love him or you hate him, there's no middle ground and people pulling in different directions according to their, their political understanding and that forms a sense of identity about who and what they are. And around those we have things like identity politics and each of these groups trying to have a, a place of power and authority in, in, in political and, and, and power situations. Those of you who have ever had a situation where your, your bank account information or your tax number or something like that has gotten out, the, the experience of identity theft is a huge issue. And those of us, I, we've had friends who've gone through that where their identity was stolen and somebody else was impersonating them and it wipes them out financially. It is a huge, huge problem and takes years to recover from this experience of a stolen identity. At some point in a lot of people's lives, and I've been through this with a number of people, there comes a time of crisis or a major life change where they experience an identity crisis. It was an interesting conversation I had with my own grandmother one morning after my grandfather passed away, and she said to me, I woke up this morning and I realized something that had never really struck me until just today. This was 
several months after my grandfather passed away, she said, I realized I'm a widow. She said, I never thought that word would identify me. And this is the place where I am. And she said, I'm a widow. There's a new word that, that describes and defines me as a person. And she talked about what that was like. Again, a sense of identity and how many people face a change in life and all of a sudden that changes who they are and how they view themselves. And those of you who have been through a, a, a significant crisis in life realize that that can completely change the way you view yourself. This issue of identity is a challenge for a lot of people. Who am I is, is the most basic of all questions that we ask ourselves. Who am I? And it often takes an entire lifetime to try and figure out the answer to that question. Who am I? And sometimes that question is not easy to answer. But I think that alongside that question of who am I is another question, and that is the question, well, what are we here for? Because those two things often go hand in hand with each other, don't they? Who am I and what am I here for? What is my purpose in life? What am I, what am I here to do? What am I here to be? I realize that teaching in a Bible college one of the questions that I am often asked by students is a question of vocation. What do I do with my life? How do I discover what God wants me to do? How do I discover God's will for my life? Hardly a week goes by that Sue or I don't deal with that question in some form with, with students at our, at our college. We're asked that all the time. Will you help me to discover what it is that God wants me to do. So often we form our identity out of what we do, but that goes the wrong direction, doesn't it? How often do I meet people who find their sense of identity in their vocation? And it's often one of the first questions we ask people, what do you do? Because then we form a sense of understanding who a person is out of what they do. But you know what scripture says, that is completely opposite to the way we ought to be thinking about this. Our sense of identity doesn't come out of what we do. Our understanding of what we do flows out of our sense of identity. Identity comes first, vocation comes second. Vocation flows out of identity. Identity should never flow out of vocation. And when we begin to think that way, we are thinking the wrong way. Our actions always declare to other people our true sense of identity. We are always declaring our identity to other people by the way we live, by the actions of our lives. We are displaying to the world, this is who we are. This is who I am. This is my sense of, of identity. I realize this can sound very theoretical and the kind of stuff that college lecturers think about, but let me assure you, this is as practical as life ever gets. It really is. I meet people all the time who are wrestling through these basic kinds of questions, especially when they're, they're faced with difficult, challenging situations in life. For many people, the loss of a job is more than just the loss of an income, it's the loss of an identity. The same can be true when we lose a spouse or our children move out of the home, when we move to another country, once I was talking with a missionary woman who returned to her home country after serving in another country for so many years, and she said to me, if I'm not a missionary, who am I? I have no identity anymore. I have to completely remake myself and understand who I am. Some of you could make a similar kind of statement. I'm no longer a fill-in-the-blank 
who am I? These questions have taken me to this letter of, this first letter of Peter. We'll be focusing on verses 9 through 12, but let me read the first part of that, as Aaron read part of that just a few moments ago, to give it some context, and we're going to focus on the last, the last few verses of this passage. So put away all malice and all deceit, and hypocrisy, and envy, and all slander. Like newborn infants, long for the pure spiritual milk, that by it you may grow up to salvation, if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. As you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious, You yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in Scripture, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame." So the honor is for you who believe, but for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation." If you know anything about the letters of, of Peter, first and second Peter, you know that they are, they are letters written to people who were facing very, very difficult times. These are, these are letters that were written in, the, in, in a situation of persecution. One commentator calls them some of the greatest persecution literature ever written. They understood the the cost of discipleship in a hostile world. Opposition and and persecution were, were common in their day. We see all of this through the letter, especially in, in chapters three and four. Look at look at chapter three, verses eight and nine. He says Finally, all of you have unity of of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. Do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless one another. Notice in chapter 3, verse 18, he says that Christ also suffered so your sufferings are simply sharing in the, in the sufferings of, of Jesus. Verse, chapter 4, verse 1, Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same, the same kind of thinking as, as Christ did, as, as he suffered in the flesh. Chapter 4, verse 12, Don't be surprised at the the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as as though something strange was, was happening to you. Verse 19, Therefore let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. 
And so all through the letter is this this reminder that these people are living in difficult times and these these constant references to the suffering and the the persecution that you are facing as as God's people. This is what Peter is is speaking to them in in the midst of, very similar to the the message that I gave a a few weeks ago from Mark 13 is we talked about the reality of of persecution for God's people in, in the world. Many people today understand this kind of suffering. And as I mentioned a few weeks ago, I have met, I've met a number of people over the years who, who have faced these, these kinds of times, the, these kinds of trials. And one pastor said to me, but, but facing suffering and persecution is just the normal Christian life, isn't it? This is what Jesus faced. This is what, this is what these people are facing. And why should we expect anything different? So in the midst of all of this suffering, Peter reminds these people of their true calling and their identity as God's people, that they wouldn't merely survive and just get through these difficult circumstances, but as we would say today, that they would be God's missional people in the midst of these kinds of circumstances, in in the midst of this kind of darkness? What does it mean to be God's missional people? I want you to notice something in this passage because Peter is drawing on something and he's pointing our attention to something very important. These phrases that he uses are intended, I think it's very much his intention, to refer us back to the Old Testament. We find these same phrases here in Exodus chapter 19, verses five and six, a very important passage in the life of God's people. He says, look at this. He says, you will be my treasured possession among all peoples, a kingdom of priests a holy nation. It's what he says to them in Exodus 19. You're you're my treasured possession. Of all the things in the world, you are my treasured possession, and you'll be a kingdom of priests, a, a holy nation. Why is this so important to understand? Well, because Peter is drawing a reference to one of the most defining moments in all of history when God acts for his people to give them a sense of identity. The the exodus from Egypt demonstrated God's power. Good morning. (laughs) Wave to all the people. Demonstrated God's power not only to redeem his people, to bring them out of slavery from Egypt and into the promised land, but but to also give them a sense of identity and purpose as his chosen and unique peoples among all the, the peoples of the earth. And so this is what Peter is referring to in helping these these harassed and helpless and persecuted people to remind them that that your identity is absolutely secure and their missional purpose as God's chosen people. I want to draw three lessons for us as we look at this passage that help us to understand our calling as God's missional people in this time and in this place. And in some ways what we see in this passage is very, very similar to what we experience in the world today. First of all, he does address this issue of our identity as God's people. Who are you? Who am I? Who are we as God's people? And Peter reminds us there in verse 9 that we are a people for God's possession that we are God's people. It's interesting what people do find their sense of identity in, isn't it? I've observed over the years that 
oftentimes people find their sense of identity more in their failures than in their successes. How so often we, we never really rise above our, our worst failure in life. And I've met a number of people who, when they begin to identify themselves and describe themselves, they, they go to a time of maybe the lowest point in their life. And, and they go back to that. And in this context, these words stand against the lies and the many false identities that people have formed. You are no longer slaves. You, the world sees you as persecuted and worthless and marginalized and set aside, but God is saying, that's not how I see you. You go back to that Exodus 19 passage, how did they see themselves? We were slaves And that forms a sense of identity. And out of that context, God says, that's not how I see you. I don't see you as slave. I don't see you as this. I I see you as my treasured possession. I love that passage in in John 15 where Jesus is talking with his disciples and he says, "I, I don't call you servants. I call you my friends. That's how I see you. I'm your friend. You're my friend. That's your identity. That's how I see you. This is is how God sees us. He says, all these other things that the world says you are, reject that. This is how I see you. You are a people for my possession. And that's how I view you. And he says, and that's how I want you to view each other. We are a people for God's possession. And Peter reminds these people that their true identity is so much more than their their present circumstances, more than their social relationships, more than their personal successes or their failures. He says, your identity is shaped and formed through the one who created you and the one who redeemed you, the one who saved you, the one who calls you his treasured possession. Paul tells us that our identity is in Christ. Sometimes we simply need to stop every day and tell ourselves the truth. And here's a statement that I tell myself every single day. You've probably heard me say this before, but you know what? Sometimes when the world speaks lies, we need to speak truth back to those lies. And here's a truth I speak to myself every day. I am in Christ. Christ is in me. That is my true identity. And I want you to say that with me because it's truth we need to hang on to. I am in Christ. Christ is in me. That is my true identity. And not the false identities that the world would try and hang on us or that I would try and claim for myself. That's who I am. But notice this phrase that Peter uses here. He says, you are a people for his own possession. Not only a reminder that we belong to him, but it is a promise that God himself is our protector and our provider. He is going to take care of us. We saw that so dramatically in Exodus as God brings his people out of Egypt and he cares for them in the wilderness. And here in 1 Peter, we're reminded that God cares for his people in the midst of persecution, in in, in times of extreme difficulty. I was reminded of this just recently as Sue and I received a a note from a, a missionary friend that we had met in Chad at the, at the edge of the Sahara Desert a number of years ago. And he shared the story of an Arab man who has been a follower of Christ for three years now, came in, coming out of a Muslim background. Here is a man who has lost everything. He has lost his business, his car, his, his access to his wife and kids. His family will have nothing to do with him anymore. But in the midst of that, his, his faith is strong. And he's, 
he mentioned this story, this very brief story. He says, I was walking to N'Djamena from a town about 150 miles away. In the middle of nowhere, and N'Djamena is in the middle of nowhere, and no villages near me, I ran out of water on the edge of the Sahara Desert. I knew that if I would... I knew that I was going to die soon if I did not get something to drink. So I prayed to God. A few minutes later, out of nowhere, I saw a camel, but no owner. I went over and I made him sit down. I know camels very well, he says. I made the camel sit down and I took a I took off a jerry can that was on his back and it was filled with clean water. So I drank it and I filled up my jerry can. And once I got to a village, I asked them, who does this camel belong to? And no one had any idea. No idea. God says, you are my people. I am committed to you. I will protect you. I will provide for you. I will care for you. You are mine. And because we are his, Peter says, we are to live as his holy people. And that's the second point that comes out of this passage, our holiness as God's people. This is the way of life that we are called to as God's people. Look at a few phrases. Look at, look at verse 5. He says, you yourselves like living stones are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood. Verse 9, he says that we are a holy nation. Also, look back at chapter 1, verses 15 and 16. He says, as he who called you is holy, you also be holy yourselves in your conduct because it is written, you shall be holy for I am holy. There is one word here, obviously, that Peter is emphasizing that word, holy. At the very core, this term has the idea of being set apart, something that is distinctive, something that is different from everything else. God is described as holy. He is utterly unique. He is utterly different from every other God that is worshiped in the world. And we are called to be holy ourselves. Again, it takes us back to Leviticus chapter 19, verse 2. It's an interesting passage, Leviticus 19. Verse 2, speak to all the congregation of the people of Israel and say to them, you shall be holy for I, the Lord your God, am holy. This It says something about God's commitment to us. He has chosen us and we are his possession and he is the one who makes us holy. But it says, but he also says the very word that describes me is the word that should describe you as well. We think when we, th- when we think of this word holy, we think of these, these tremendous visions like Isaiah chapter six where the seraphim around the throne are, are circling around, around this, this, this image of God and, and they are calling to one another across the throne room, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God of hosts. Heaven and earth is, are filled with his glory. And Isaiah seeing that vision not only recognizes God's holiness, but his first response is to recognize his own unholiness, his own sinfulness. And he says, I am undone. I am a man of unclean lips. 
because my eyes have seen the glory of God. And I live among a people of unclean lips. And in that moment, God touches him. And he purifies him and he says, I have taken away your guilt. Nothing can purify us other than that touch of God himself. That is the only thing that can make us holy is when God himself touches us and purifies us and cleanses us from the heart outward. You see, God's purpose in the Old Testament was not so much to send his people out to preach and evangelize as we think of mission today. In the Old Testament, it is a a work of transformation. That is God's missional strategy in the Old Testament is to be such a unique people of God, such a pure and holy people of God, a people who were so different from the world around them that it would get their attention and it would draw them in. There is a powerful witness in our community and in our world when God's people look more and more like God himself. Or as verse 12 says back in in, in 1 Peter, that people would see your good works and glorify God as they see how different you are as a people. Peter says that as God's holy people, we, we are to abstain from the passions of the flesh that wage war against our souls. We are to keep our conduct among the Gentiles or in our, our wider community honorable, he says. In other words, our actions and our words display the very character of God in the way we treat one another, the way we conduct ourselves. And it's a good question for us to think about at times. What does my, what does my conduct, what does my character What does the way we treat one another, the way we think about one another, what does that say about the God that we worship? What does that display to the world about the God we worship in the character and the conduct of our lives? Does it display holiness or does it display something else? What does that say about my identity? What are we telling one another? What are we telling ourselves? What are we telling the world? What are we demonstrating? Is it the holiness of God? Is it the character of God? Or is it something else? How does my identity as a Christ follower reflect on God's character? Our first priority as God's missional people is paying attention to the conditions of our own soul and cooperating with God in his work of transformation. Everything that we do as individuals and as a church is not merely a reflection of our own character. It is a reflection of the God whose name and image we bear. How are we doing at that? Or like Isaiah, when we get a glimpse of God, do we recognize those places of unholiness? Isaiah may have looked at God and said, I am a man of unclean lips because I speak in unclean ways. Maybe as you get that glimpse of God, you would look at that and say, I'm not a man of unclean lips, but I am a person of unclean thoughts. I am a person of unclean actions. 
I am a person of unclean. You fill in the blank. That's where you sit before God himself and say, as I get a glimpse of your image and your holiness, this is the uncleanness that I bring to you. What is that? Every single one of us has that place. There's not a person exempt. And God says, let me purify that. Let me cleanse that. Let me touch that and take it from you. Because you will be holy as I am holy. And I want you to reflect my character, my identity. This is who you are. Flowing out of that understanding of who we are and the purification only that God can bring, he says, I want you to join me in my mission to the world. It is not our mission, it is God's mission to the world. Look through this passage and we see the work of God all through this. Verse 5, you are being built as a spiritual house. But notice that God is the one doing the building and we are the ones being built. Verse 6, God is laying in Zion a stone. Verses 9 and 10, God chooses us as his people. He forms us, he calls us, and he gives us a sense of identity. And what we have to understand is that mission is the story of what God is doing. Mission is his story. It's not ours. He created us for relationship. He he has formed us with the capacity to know him, to relate to him, to love him. And mission is always the story of God going after seeking and saving lost people. Seeking and saving men and women who have willfully rejected him. It is, it is the story of all of creation groaning under the weight of sin, longing to be released from the f- and redeemed from the curse. It is the story of every single one of us aching for relief from physical and emotional and relational and spiritual brokenness. It is the story of God redeeming all of this, not only the souls of men and women, but, but redeeming all things, as Paul says in Colossians 1, 19 and 20, redeeming all things through the blood of Jesus' cross. And our mission flows from God's mission. I love the way Christopher Wright says it. He says, it isn't that God has a mission for his church, He has a church for his mission. It's his mission. And so the question that I often ask myself myself many times a day is, God, what are you doing here and now? What are you doing? What what is your invitation to me to enter into and to, to take part in your work of redemption? He always makes the first move. He he is always ahead of us. I always have to assume every time I go into a situation, God is already doing something. And I just say, Spirit, help me to be attentive to what you're doing. And how do I join you in that? It's his work. And he invites us to join him. And we always have to ask ourselves, in what way are we joining God in his work? But alongside that is a a second question, in what way are we hindering that work? In what way are we blocking that work? Because that can happen as well. I had such a reminder of this, I, I sometimes think about this story. A few years ago when we were living in the States, I was... I was getting ready to, to board a flight. As a missionary, you just spend way too much time on airplanes. We were getting, I was getting ready to board a flight, and I was in, in the airport in Dallas, Texas. And as I was, as I was getting ready to, to get on the plane, I was sitting in the, in the waiting area for this flight. 
And you know, you have those moments where you look across the room and you spot a person. And and my first thought was, I hope that woman isn't on my flight. She just was one of those kind of people that you could tell that everything was going to be a problem, you know? She kept running to the desk and asking about this, and they said, no, 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 you can't do that, you know? And she, it, everything you, every person you talked to, you could see, oh, she's got issues, you know? And this is going to be a challenge. And I thought, I hope she's not on my plane. Because I was tired. I'd been in meetings for three days, and I was just, I just want to, I just want a quiet flight, go home, you know, and that sort of thing. And um, so I got on the plane, and I had a window seat, and I got in, I settled down, and the seat next to me was empty. And uh, after a few minutes, guess who sat in that seat? <laughs> and uh, I was sitting there, and, and she, she tried to engage the, the other person, you know, on the other side, in the aisle seat. She tried to engage her in conversation, and, and that person over there wanted nothing to do with her, you know, it was like, leave me alone. She just kept, she buried herself in her magazine and, and she thought, well, she's not getting anywhere with her. So she turned to me and just started talking to me. And I was, I was trying to get some reading done. You know, I had a little bit of work to do and, and she was just persistent. And finally, at some point, she just looked at what I was doing and she said, that looks really interesting. What is that? And and I told her what it was. It was a, it was a chapter from a, a dissertation that I was supervising. And, and um, she said, well, what do you do? And I said, well, I, I, I teach theology at a seminary in the States. And she said, oh. Well, all of a sudden, she just poured out the story of her life. The many marriages and the many divorces, and this problem and that problem, and she just poured all of that out. And I sat there and listened. And after a while, I I was able to tell her that the only solution to the brokenness of her life And the only solution to the brokenness of this world was to turn back to God and find peace through Jesus. It was interesting, she said to me, isn't it a coincidence that for the last several days, I have been thinking about these questions. And today I sit, isn't it a coincidence that I sit next to a man who can give me answers to my questions? And I responded to her, it is no coincidence. I said, God is pursuing you. I said, this meeting is by his design. He wants you to turn to him. And I believe that in every situation I go into. God is here ahead of me, preparing the way. Am I open to that? Am I receptive to what God is doing in this moment, or am I so consumed with my own agenda? And yes, I was consumed with my own agenda until God finally just kicked me and said, get busy. This is what I have for you. You see, mission always takes place wherever there are broken and fallen people. In other words, everywhere. A new postal code does not make you a missionary. An attentiveness to God's spirit, listening to his voice, responding to his promptings, and acting in the power of the spirit will necessarily engage us in God's mission as we understand truly who we are in Christ. That is the only thing that makes me a missionary. It's just understanding my identity in Jesus. It all has to begin in understanding who we are and allowing God to do that work of transformation. So to what degree are you cooperating with God? 
To what degree are you resisting God in that work? We are to image God and to show this world, to give this world a glimpse of what it means to be God's holy, holy, holy people. That's who we are. Are we living that? Woe is me. I am a person of unclean. Sit with God with that so he can purify and make you his holy person, his missional person. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the reminder of who we are as you see us, for giving us an identity that is absolutely sure and certain and unshakable, though this world would try and give us a different identity. I just ask, Father, as you call us to be your holy people, by the power of your Spirit, reveal to each one of us what is that unholy place that you want to purify, that you want to take from us, that you want to take from our midst as a people. Help us, Father, not to inhibit that work that you want to do. Help us to give it all to you. To lay it down at the foot of the throne, at the foot of the cross.